Our lesson this morning is from the book of uh, Luke, the seventh chapter, verses 1 through 17. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word, and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God looked favorably on his people. The word went about him. The word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, friends, we are in the third week of our series, Resurrection Stories. We're exploring the stories of resurrection that are found throughout the Bible, this theme of life being returned to that which had lost it. And as we explore these stories, drawing parallels to the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth as we head towards Easter. Easter, of course, being the time when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, truthfully, if we distill it all the way down, what makes us Christian? A belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and has offered to us that same resurrection. That's what makes us Christians, so it makes sense to spend some time understanding what this resurrection meant. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First, we have to establish who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what Jesus means for the world. That was what Jesus was doing during his ministry, establishing the church and providing a rubric for Christian leadership and discipleship, and establishing his own role in being the means by which the grace of God would be made available for all. Now, the last two weeks, we talked about two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Each have a story of raising someone from the dead. Elijah actually has two. Last week, we read the story of him 
raising the, the wealthy woman's son from the dead, you recall. He, he uh, heard from her that he had died, went back with her and prayed over him, and he rose again. But after Elijah died, a man was to be buried in the same grave, and when he fell into the grave and touched Elijah's bones, he too came back to life. So Elijah actually gets two points here, but as we're going to find as we explore the rest of this series, Jesus gets a little more points than all of them, but we're ahead of ourselves again. Elijah and Elisha uh, existed several centuries, about 800 years prior to Jesus. And the work that they did was, was really extraordinary, and their resurrections were stories that were passed down through those generations as perhaps the penultimate miracle, the pinnacle moment of God's power through these two great prophets. These stories were important to Jews. These stories were important to the faithful people who read their scriptures and learned of these stories. These stories also had kind of a similar theme. Both Elijah and Elisha approached women who, in their own unique ways, weren't exactly entirely whole in society. Both met them at the city gates, both saw them and raised from the dead by invoking the Spirit of God through intercessory prayer. Both placed themselves physically in the presence of those who needed prayer. Both had a very important two-part response from those around them, first affirming that the person who had done these things was from God. And second, affirming that God was indeed God and a good and just God. This morning, we read a story that, if you paid close attention to the first week, you might recognize, because it is remarkably similar to Elijah's story. In fact, it's nearly identical. Both Elijah and Jesus were approaching the gates of a city when they met a widow. Both Elijah and Jesus called out to the widow and offered them peace. Both physically touched that which needed healing. Both cried out to God, both gave the child back to its mother, and in both stories, the crowd affirmed those two things, that that which they had seen, that which they had witnessed, was evidence of a great prophet, and that God was God and was just and good. Now, Jesus' raising of the widow uh, of Nain's son is critically important in the Gospels. I'm reminded that the ending of the Gospel, according to John, is that this is just a fraction of what happened, right? I love that part of John. When we did our series on John, I said that was my favorite part because it reminds us that for all of the richness of the Gospels, they contain just a segment of everything that happened during Jesus' ministry on earth. As exciting as that is, it creates this wonder in me of what made the cut and why. Why is this story so important? Because there's other moments in the New Testament where, for example, uh, Jesus, the, the, the disciples say that Jesus and his disciples went to a village and healed some people, raised some people from the dead, and they moved on, right? For some reason, those stories didn't get elaborated on. For some reason, those stories were just snippets, and I don't have the answer to why that is, but I do begin to wonder why the story of the widow at Nain was so important, why this was one that, the, in this case, Luke felt it was important to write down and to mention. In fact, it's in all the synoptic gospels. Well, the reason is this. I don't think those coincidences were coincidences. I don't think those similarities were on accident. Jesus was a student of the Scriptures. He was a rabbi. That meant that he was highly educated in the Torah, that he spent a great deal of time learning the Bible. And we see this time and time again when Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus with Scripture as if they're going to stump him, right? Well, teacher, you can't do that because the Scripture says X. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you forgot about Y, right? Jesus always had an answer to that because he gave us an example of what faithful-like looks like, and faithful-like looks like having a deep and critical understanding of Scripture, of reading it, understanding it, and taking a critical eye to it to understand God's intentions through these words. 
So when Jesus is approaching Nain and he sees the widow at the gates, Jesus is cognizant of the need to separate himself from the other rabbis as a prophet and to separate himself from the other prophets as the Messiah. Now, it wasn't yet time for him to make that declaration. It wasn't yet time for him to sit down with his disciples and say that I am offering you eternal life. Not yet. But the seeds needed to be planted, and Jesus sees the story of Elijah and the widow playing out in front of him. Now, what Jesus did not do is move aside off the road, right? We still have that tradition today. That tradition starts all the way back to before Elijah because the roads were narrow and dead bodies were terrifying, right? Dead bodies were not something you wanted to spend any time around, so it made a lot of sense to get the heck off the road when a funeral passed by. <clears throat> and we continue that as a sign of respect even today in our car as we pull off to the side of the road when we see a, when we see a funeral procession coming. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't gather his disciples together and say, let's get together and take a moment to pray for this family. He doesn't do that. He approaches them, he walks up to them, and then he does everything Elijah did, except for one thing. Did you catch it? Starts out with a widow, right? Luke mentions that. It says, Luke's the only one who says that it's her only son. Uh, the other two didn't mention that, but Luke thought that was important. This is her only son. She's a widow. She's here at the city gates. She's distressed and distraught. Jesus approaches her. Jesus invokes the power of God. And, and in the end, Jesus gives the son back to the mother, just like Elijah did. Right? Elijah gives the son back. Jesus gives the son back. But what happened in the middle is profoundly different and is what separates Elijah from Jesus. Even on the cross, people wondered if this was Elijah. Elijah, as we talked about last week, did not die in the traditional sense. He was assumed into heaven, right? So it was the belief of Jews that Elijah was on his way back, and there was some discussion about maybe that was John the Baptist, and plenty of discussion that maybe that was Jesus. Maybe Jesus was Elijah. Jesus needs to establish himself as more than Elijah, as the one that Elijah was telling you was coming. He was the one Elijah was promising. So when Elijah heals and, and raises the dead son, he prays over him, he lies over him, he, he <clears throat> places his hands on him. He violates all the rules because you're not supposed to touch dead bodies. And Jews actually were the longest living people uh, in that time period. The Egyptians had surgery, uh, the Romans had medicine, but the Jews had the best hygiene rules. As arbitrary as they were, washing hands, staying away from dead bodies, not eating foodborne illness, common meat, made a lot of sense. So he does what he's not supposed to do. He places his hands on the body. He prays to God. Elijah gets up because it doesn't work. He goes back. He prays again. And eventually, through the power of God, the boy raises. But that is not what Jesus did. Do you remember? He touches the beer and he says, get up. He commands the boy to rise. Now, they may not have realized it yet at that moment, but those thunderous words, get up were the words of God. They were standing in the presence of God, something that even Jesus' disciples had yet to understand. As they stood in the presence of God, Jesus did not need to pray to God, although Jesus prayed frequently. Let's make that clear. Jesus did not need to pray to God for God to heal this man. Jesus commanded this man to get up. Unlike Elijah, unlike Elijah, who prayed intercessorily to God, who prayed uh, for the, on the behalf of these uh, who had died for God's providence, Jesus commanded him to rise. For 800 years, people have been hearing the story of Elijah, who prayed to God and saw one rise from the dead after he met a woman at the gates. Jesus fulfills the story by commanding the dead to rise. 
I don't think we can understate how profoundly important that moment was, that distinction, where the story was identical otherwise. Just the names are different and the places are a little bit different. But when Jesus commands the dead to rise, Jesus demonstrates the power of God that exists through him. Because again, it's not as simple as Jesus is basically Elijah. That was a common belief, even of some of the disciples, right? We hear that murmuring that Jesus is Elijah, and clearly Jesus is something more than just Elijah. Jesus is God. Again, they hadn't quite got it yet, but those seeds are being planted. Luke's gospel is only seven chapters in, but it's in this moment that the crowd begins to affirm the greatness of the prophet among them, though they have yet to realize what we today who are gathered in this place know to be true, that they stood in the presence of God, that those words were God's words, that God's commandments are so powerful they can even command the dead to rise. Jesus first made himself similar to Elijah so that he could set himself apart from Elijah. It was at that moment that Jesus commanded life. That moment was was prefaced with a miraculous healing, a text that we also read, which is a story that I really like because it's such an interesting dichotomy. The centurions were not the friends of the Jews. The centurions were Roman soldiers who came to occupy their territory, right? We, We pretty much know that story, right? We know that the Romans came to tax the Jews. They were a little concerned about invading the Jews. They were a little concerned about completely taking over their territory simply because they had powerful armies, although that day would come. But the centurions were not popular with the people who really thought that Ahab and other kings uh, uh, that came after him should really be the one in charge. So the centurion has the slave that needs healing, and it's the crowd that approaches Jesus and basically says, Jesus, he's one of the good guys, believe it or not. He really cares about us. In fact, he built our synagogue. Immediately, the crowd sets the centurion apart and gives us this example of how one who comes from a bad background can be good because it's not who we are, it's not where we're born, it's not who our parents are, it's not what church we go to, it's not the clothes that we wear, but it's the actions that we do, it's the way that we speak that determines whether we're aligning ourselves with God or not, which is a bit different than what the people are used to. If you were not born into a Jewish family, you were not Jewish. If you were born in Samaria, you were a Samaritan. There was no conversion process. In some really, really, really extreme cases, but even then they were kind of seen as heretical. Jesus can forgive even a centurion when his actions align themselves with God. So Jesus says this amazingly profound thing, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. He says this about a centurion, about a Roman. Now I think the reason Jesus said that was because of what started. At, at, At glance, the centurion seems to brag himself up a bit, right? He says that I'm the leader I have soldiers who listen to me. I have a slave who does whatever I say. I think that that's not the part. I think the part that matters is what prefaced that. When he says, I'm not worthy. All throughout Jesus' ministry, we see these examples where people said, Lord, I keep the commandments. Lord, I'm there every Sabbath. Lord, I do what I'm supposed to do. I give and I tithe. Lord, I do what I'm supposed to do. I pray. Lord, I give every tenth basil leaf to God. Why then am I not healed? The centurion says, God, I don't deserve this. Jesus, I don't deserve your presence. I haven't earned it. But if you would command him to be healed, he would be healed. It was a faith of humility that says that God is not about me, it's about what I can do for others. And it's a faith that says that Jesus Christ has the power to heal. 
These texts have me thinking this Lent about <clears throat> what it is that we're preparing for. Lent is a time of reflection, devotion, preparation. It's a time of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a time to renew commitments and solidify practices. And each of these elements are critically important in living our faith in Christ. The first is prayer, and this is something that I struggle with at times, and I'm sure many of you too, too. We get so busy in our lives that we forget about the critical importance of our prayer life. In fact, just this morning, I, Darren and I usually pray before service, and I totally skipped it because I had a million people uh, talking to me all at once, and I wanted to get church started, and I totally missed out on something that's really important to me in starting worship. We get so busy that we forget our prayer life, and prayer life means more than just having prayer in your back pocket. Kind of like your debit card, you know, you, you spend it when you need it. When, when something comes up, you use it, otherwise it just sits there, right? It's there, it's in your pocket, it's always available, and so that gives us this false sense of security that because prayer is always there, because prayer is always available, even we might do it every day, like before we go to bed or at a meal, that we have a good prayer life. But is prayer something that consumes who we are? Is prayer something that is every part of what we do? Are we praying people, or are we just people who pray? That might not sound very different, but if prayer is not who we are, instead it's just something we do, we can really miss the point. And friends, I implore you to consider your own prayer life. Is prayer central and pivotal in your life, or is it just something that we do? Now, the second element is presence. We live in a world that does so much without physically being there. And in some ways, that's really great. <clears throat> My great-grandmother died in 2005, and she was very close to me. I was, I was very close to her. And she had a husband that I never met because he died before I was born. He served in World War II. Uh, the, the story she loved to tell was that he was a teacher. Um, he, uh, he was a teacher. He taught art in St. Louis City Public Schools and then later at, um, at university. And <clears throat> he had told her that when he got drafted, you know, of course, they made him an officer because he had a college degree. He was a lieutenant. And they said, uh, he said, well, they're not going to put a teacher on the front lines. I'm doing payroll, right? That's what he told her. And the truth of the matter is that she got to find out from a Harry Truman who sent her a letter that he was an infantry commander, that he was wounded on the battlefield, carrying people off of the battlefield, even after being ordered to retreat. For that, he received uh, a bronze star. And I read these stories about him to kind of learn a little bit more about him, this ancestor of mine who I never met but who did extraordinary things. And when she died, she had this stack of letters that she received while he was serving in the war. And I don't really know how you could even read them because they were all scratched out by the censors. That was common in that time that the army is really concerned about mail being intercepted, and so they would censor and you know, line out anything that might contain private information. So these letters were almost unreadable. They were so chopped up. But she'd kept them their whole, whole life because that was the only presence that she had of her husband while he was at war. In fact, there was even a time where a paperwork mix-up resulted in her receiving a notice that he'd been killed in action, only for him to show up at her door two days later because it was supposed to say he was being returned home and he had finished his tour. <clears throat> now, things have changed. Just last week, my little brother, who's deployed right now, called me from Spain. And my phone rings, and it says Caleb Hampton, and I think, well, either somebody's stolen his phone or he's back early, right? And uh, so I answer. He says, good news, I just found out that I can get unlimited international calling uh, through my carrier. And so I, I bought it, and so now I can call you guys. And I think, that's awesome. And so I'm, I began to think about those letters that I read when I was a kid. I think, how different this is, that I could just talk to my brother on the phone. 
at Christmas, two years ago when he was deployed at Christmas, he was in Bahrain, and he was having a Christmas party in his ship, and he went away to a corner with a laptop so we could video chat with him. Very, very different. In those ways, it's wonderful, but in some ways, we're losing our way. Many of you know that I love to read about history, especially history where people have freaked out about something, right? Because everything's always the end of the world when that's the only context you have, and then hindsight makes it fun to read about. There are op-eds out there you can find in, in magazines like the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, about how dangerous the telephone was going to be. We'll never leave our homes again. One op-ed even said that the telephone would end the human race because we would never need physical interaction ever again. We'd never marry. We'd never date. We'd do everything we need to do from the phone. We'd never leave our house. We'd order our groceries on the phone. We'd do our jobs on the phone. We'd talk to our families on the phone. If we allow telephones to come into our communities, right? This is a long time ago. If we allow telephones to come into our communities, society will crumble. It has yet to crumble. And people have said the same thing about the internet, and people have said the same thing about social media, and whatever comes next, they'll say it about that. In some ways, it is true. In some ways, we're so connected that we're disconnected. We have this amazing ability to be so connected with the world. How many of you who use social media, be honest here, have someone in your life that you know everything about but have not seen in years, right? you got somebody in your news feed that you see all the time, you know everything that's going on in their lives, and, and you haven't seen them in years, right? It's one of the amazing things about it. We're so connected that we've become disconnected. In our Christian walk, we believe that because we can connect with God in so many different ways, which are good, and we can connect with other believers uh, through so many different ways, which are good, and we can read the Bible. Every, every one of us has, just about, has a phone that might have the ability to have the Bible on it. How cool is that? that almost nobody uh, these days walks anywhere without a Bible. Whether they use it or not, it's another thing. But they have the ability to have it right there. How cool is that? But none of that replaces our presence. Elijah and Elisha did not pray from a distance. Remember, Elisha tried. Elisha tried to send his servant to go and place his staff on the boy's face, and it didn't do anything. Nothing happened until Elijah came and was present there. Elijah touched the boy. Jesus didn't pray from a distance. I'm sure he could have, right? He's got the power of God. How could God not? But he goes and he approaches and he touches the beer. That's the, that's the cart they pull the casket on. He goes and he touches it. He says, get up. Our presence matters. <clears throat> when we serve our communities in the world, we have to do it in ways besides just together and talking about it. We have to be present in our world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even in worship, There is a myriad of ways to serve God outside of worship, and that is so cool. I think more than we've ever had. I think we have more ways to connect with God now than in any generation in the the past, and I think that is amazing. But nothing replaces being present with other believers together to serve God together, because presence matters. And finally, the third element is the power of our words and our actions that can actually carry weight. None of us had the power of God. None of us had the power to speak life, to say, get up. That exists only for God. But we all have the power to speak words that can profoundly change the lives of those who are willing to hear them. The story that you and I have to share is the story of Jesus Christ. By demonstrating our compassion, our patience, our justice and mercy, by speaking to grace and being present in the world as representatives of Christ, we can speak words that are just as earth-shattering by speaking the words that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that you and I might also experience resurrection, 
that you and I might also live. <clears throat> there is no more important story can be heard in this world, and it's you and I who are tasked with sharing it. Amen.